0: Connect with Jason on Twitter at Jason Grill. Connect with the show on Twitter at Grill Nation Show and online at GrillNationShow.com. Welcome your host of Grill Nation, always dressed up and ready to go even in a radio studio. Here's Jason Grill. Hello and welcome to the Grill Nation Show. I am your host, Jason Grill. Thanks for listening today on 980 AM and on iTunes. If you're joining us via podcast. Or on our website at grillnationshow.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jason Grill and at Grill Nation Show. Also on social media, just search for my name, Jason Grill. I appreciate you joining us again today. And uh, welcome to summer. Summer has started here in Kansas City. uh, I'm excited about our show today. We are going to have on a guy that I've known for, I don't know, probably five to ten years or so. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more, but... He uh, he's definitely a leader here in Kansas city. And uh, I've actually, I don't believe I've ever had him on the show. I have been on another radio show with him at some point, or I've seen him on a radio show at some point, or I've been in the studio <laughs> with him, but we are uh, we're taking via zoom today. I am joined today by Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro leagues baseball museum here in Kansas city, Missouri. Their website is nlbm.com And Bob is on Twitter at nlbmpres. P-R-E-Z. He's very active on Twitter. Uh, Bob, welcome to the show. Uh, how are you today?
1: Jason, man, thanks for having me. I- I'm doing well. I'm good, doing well, good. you know, all things considered.
0: That's right. We got a lot of stuff going on, and today's going to be a positive show, Bob. We're going to talk, we're going to have some fun. First off, I want to start with your background because, uh, frankly, I, you know, I, I, I've i known you just since you've been the president, uh, but you have quite a interesting background. Uh, you grew up in Georgia, is that right?
1: Small-town Georgia, rural Georgia,
0: town called Crawfordville,
1: Georgia. Crawfordville, Georgia, is about 80 miles east of Atlanta, about 50 miles west of Augusta, all of 500 people. So, yeah, very small-town upbringing, but that's where my roots were began. And I left Georgia when I was 18 years old to come out to the Midwest to go to Park College at that time, now Park University, and I've been here in the Kansas City area ever since. So, you know, I've been in this area longer than I grew up in Georgia. So, but uh, that, that's where my roots began. And, and of course, home is always where you where your roots are.
0: How did you end up at Park College? Was it a uh, athletic scholarship <laughs> or what?
1: I tell you what, I'm still as surprised as anybody that they found me in Little Crawfordville, Georgia. And offered me a basketball scholarship. I was actually on my way to Howard University uh, from the time that I was probably 10, 12 years old. I knew that I was going to Howard University. I had a brother that lived in DC. I went to visit him every summer. And so I had gotten accepted to Howard University. They wanted me to walk on, they didn't have any scholarship money for me. So I was going to walk on and try to make the basketball team in that 13th hour. Little Park College, Parkville, Missouri, sends me a, a scholarship to come play basketball. Their partial scholarship, and honestly, I just went with the money. I followed the money. I didn't know anybody <laughs> out in this neck of the woods. Didn't know a soul came out to Parkville in 1980, and I've been here ever since.
0: So you uh, you did that, and then you you started your career kind of in the, in. Uh... Well, one, you were a a volunteer uh, when the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum was gone, but you you worked at the Kansas City Star. That's probably a fact that nobody really knew about you, probably, uh, that hasn't followed your career. What was that like? I know you did a lot of marketing there.
1: it, It was interesting because I graduated with a degree in communication arts, emphasis in broadcast communications. And so I didn't know, Jason, if I wanted to move toward the print side of our business or to the promotions advertising side. So I just wanted to get my foot in the door. I started working in the composing room. And so for those who know me now for wearing suits and hats, once upon a time, guys, I used to wear a denim apron that had pockets and I had an exacto knife and a piker pole and I'm literally (laughs) cutting and pasting the newspaper uh, because that's the way it was done at that time. And it goes, got to work with some amazing editors in that process. But ultimately, I gravitated to the promotional side. And uh, at that time, the star had an agency, almost like an in-house advertising agency, called the Promotions Group. And so I ultimately became a copywriter and eventually senior copywriter in the star's promotions department again, which functioned as an in-house advertising agency. So we were doing a lot of campaigns for not-for-profit organizations as part of the STARS' kind of social and civic responsibility at that time. One of those projects just happened to be the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum.
0: Right. So you helped promote the uh, one of the first traveling exhibits in 1993, and then you were uh, you were you uh, became a member of the board of directors that year.
1: Yeah, yeah, 1993, the museum was launching a traveling exhibition called Discover Greatness. Believe it or not, that exhibit is still touring the country today. It is at the Yogi Berra Museum, as we speak, and of course, to been affected by COVID, and was playing to rave reviews, so much so that the Yogi Berra Museum has actually asked us, and we've granted it, an extended year-long stay of this exhibition because they were getting so much foot traffic from folks in that area there in Montclair, New Jersey, and that surrounding area that wanted to come and see this exhibition. Well, it debuted in a storefront space where Bayou on the Vine restaurant is now formerly Danny's, right there on the corner. It debuted in that space in 1993. I I put the promotional campaign together, drew about 10,000 people in the month of August to come see that exhibition. And and you got to remember, at that time, there was nothing else at 18th and Vine. Mm-hmm. 18th and Vine had been abandoned and, and so the Lincoln building was the only functioning building there in the historic 18th Divine Vine jazz district this exhibit debuted in that storefront space and and had a lot of success and that's what ultimately prompted the officials there to ask me if I would consider joining the board of directors which I did and served in that role as a volunteer for five years before stepping off the board to become the museum's first uh, full-time director of marketing in 1998.
0: Yeah, you did that and you kind of uh, kept your row in there and VP of marketing, director of marketing, uh, kind of putting the the museum on the map, uh, so to say. Uh, And then uh, you became uh, you had you had a you had a stop at another organization and then you became the president. It looks like in 2011. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had this role with the museum from 1998 until 2010. I left for 13 months (laughs) and then in April of 2011, here I come back to become president of the organization they were so funny jason when i announced that i was leaving the museum and this outpouring of love from the community they gave me this big party gave me all these nice parting gifts and then 13 months later here i come right back into the doors and i'm saying to myself do i have to get those gifts back
0: <laughs> <laughs> you you uh, you were an executive director so you didn't leave for a, a marketing position you led for a leadership position and then came yep. back and, and officially became president uh, shortly thereafter. That, that must have been an interesting experience. I want to start with that after the break. Uh, we're going to talk to Bob about kind of how he grew the museum and with the community and, and how they've, you know, really, really changed that area and kind of changed the thought process with regards to the uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum throughout the country. We're going to get some great, uh, great advice from uh, Bob here. We're going to talk about Buck O'Neill. There's going to be all kinds of great things on the radio show today. You're listening to the Grill Nation show. I'm Jason Grill here on 980 AM and on iTunes via podcast. Uh, we'll be right back after the break with Bob Kinder, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Today I don't feel like doing anything. I just wanna lay in my bed. Don't feel like up. My- Welcome back to the Grill Nation Show here at 980 a.m and on iTunes via podcast. I hope you're having a great day. I am your host Jason Grill. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jason Grill. Again, we're joined today by Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Their website is nlbm.com, and Bob is on Twitter, at nlbmprez, P-R-E-Z. Bob, we were talking about your background and kind of, you know, your, your history here, and so you decided to stay in Kansas City. You, you you kind of had a lot of different marketing roles at the museum. You left for a 13-month period to become the executive director <laughs> of another organization. You came back as president in 2011. Where was the museum at then? I mean, what I, I'm trying to remember back to then. What? I mean, yeah. obviously it, is, it has been, it's way out there now, but what was it like when you took over well, as president?
1: Well, well, part of the reason, Jason, that I came back was the challenge of trying to pull the museum out of what was a very difficult sit- economic situation. you was post you remember. yeah,
0: the economy. Yeah,
1: exactly, when the economy had tanked, and you go back to 2006 when the museum lost its inspirational leader, Buck O'Neill, who had passed away in October of 2006. And uh, ultimately, its executive director, Don Motley, retired. And so the museum had moved through what really was kind of a murky transition plan. And, and it's well documented that I missed out on becoming, at that time, the role was executive director of the museum. And, and I missed out by what I've been told was one vote. Hmm. uh And lost out to another individual who ultimately assumed the role, and it was almost a perfect storm, you know coming out of a downturn of a down down economy, uh bucks passing, and then transition that unfortunately did not work out and and so I kind of knew that that with this public groundswell for the fact that folks wanted me to have that job, and I think it bothered the individual that was in that role and you could tell that the relationship was not going to be one that was going to be harmonious enough for us to advance this organization. So I decided that it was going to be in the museum's best interest and my best interest if I go do something else. Um, and so I did. I opted to go take a, a role with the National Sports Center for the Disabled. We had a Kansas City officer headquartered in Denver, Colorado. and. Uh, Unfortunately, the situation financially wasn't going well at the museum. Mm-hmm. And so here I come back 13 months later to as try a and see if, yeah, as the president of the organization, to try and orchestrate a turnaround, a financial turnaround of a place that was so near and dear to me. And I think a lot of people, Jason, thought it was an easy decision for me to come back. It was probably the most excruciating decision I've ever had to make. You know, and and this is beyond just the your own ego that says, hey, I wasn't good enough the first time around. Why you want me to come back now? It's beyond that. It it became to for me kind of weighing. What happens if you can't fix it? Yeah, because, you know, it, it's almost human nature. We don't ever remember the person that messed it up. We just remember the people that are there when the ship sinks. And, okay. and, and so I'm saying to myself, what happens if you can't get this turned around? And and I'll be honest, you, you're never supposed to make these decisions with your heart. You're supposed to make them with your head. And mm-hmm. the more I tried to be rational and I'm trying to talk myself out of it. And the more rational I tried to be, old Buck was standing on my shoulder saying, come on back home. Mm-hmm. And if I tell you I made decisions with anything other than my heart, I'd be lying. And and it was at the risk of failing. And, and, and I, I think at some point, I was willing to accept that if I fail, I can live with that. But I can't stand on the sideline and allow a place that I had given my heart and soul to and all the people that I admire who had been a part of this project and do nothing and so made the decision to come back and we haven't looked back since
0: yeah you know that's interesting have because, because well. you, you, know, you had you were in the board you were at, there forever you know before so you were only gone for a year and then so you, in your mind you have like you know I've been here I've been helping out I've been giving my best ideas in marketing I've been doing all this but you know, you're, then, you, ha, then you, you got that in your mind with, like, I've never been the leader before. I've kind of been on board. I've been part of the team. And now I'm the leader. And so what 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 was the what did you do that was the most successful? I mean, I read about the fact that you, you experienced a profit in 2012, according to an t- article I read, um, a pretty substantial one. And so yeah. that was very quickly after you kind of became president.
1: Well, you know, Jason, I tell people all the time, the good Lord takes care of babies and foods. And I'm not sure which category I fall into. But literally, the stars seemingly align. And and that's why I tell people all the time. I just feel like old Buck has been looking over my shoulder every step of the way. So when I get back in 2011, there just happened to be what would have been Buck O'Neill's 100th birthday celebration. Mm -hmm. And the museum really didn't have anything planned substantially. I get in and I quickly orchestrate a Buck O'Neill 100th birthday celebration. And all of a sudden, it re-energized the funding community around someone who still had great equity in our community, Buck O'Neill. People have not forgotten Buck. He's been gone now 14 years, and people still remember what Buck O'Neill meant to this community and to the baseball world. We don't want them to ever forget that. So I come in, it's the occasion of his 100th birthday we orchestrated a successful 100th birthday celebration. Okay, we're building a little bit of momentum. Well, the next year, 2012, All-Star Game comes to Kansas City. Okay, I
0: forgot about that. That
1: is right. Quite- uh-huh. And we put together a great All-Star Game plan. And really, outside of the activities that took place at Kauffman Stadium, the Negro Leagues Museum was the star of the All-Star Game. I mean, it was a proverbial who's who of baseball celebrities there at the museum from Sharon Robinson, Jackie Robinson's daughter, doing a a reading program at the museum. There was Henry Aaron and the late great Frank Robinson in a discussion moderated by Dave Winfield there at the museum. Three Hall of Famers. It was absolutely magical. The next day, my dear friend Joe Posnanski has a sit-down conversation with Lou Brock, Hall of Famer Lou Brock. And they're talking the art of base stealing. The very next day, Joe comes back and he hosts a conversation with the late, great Tony Gwynn on the art of hitting. And and so we were able to ride that crest of having an all-star game in Kansas City and parlay that into great success. 2013, almost by happenstance, I stumble into a Kansas City connection to the film Forty-Two. (laughs) <laughs> the Jackie Robinson story. Okay, and, and you know we knew the film was going to be released, and, and of course Jackie's professional baseball roots began here in Kansas City. So I'm just looking for any avenue to try and connect us to this film that was about to be released nationwide, that was going to tell his story. Well, I stumble across this relationship that Waddell and Reed had with Thomas Toll over at the Legendary Film an investment relationship. Man, I started blindly calling people and stumbled on the relationship. That's a, that's a great one to
0: find right there.
1: <laughs> you know, stumble onto a guy who was there when I talked to him. He said, we were just talking about you guys. We want to do a screening of the film with the museum. Well, we didn't know the screening of the film was going to turn into probably the second largest screening outside of Los Angeles. But as you well know, they do that in Hollywood all the time. We don't get to do it in Kansas City that often. Well, we had Chad Bozeman, who starred as Jackie Robinson. We had Harrison Ford, who plays Branch Rickey in the film. Andre Holland, who plays the reporter Wendell Smith. All here for our red carpet screening of the film 42. And this thing was electric. I've done a lot of events in my life. And we've never sold out an event as fast as we sold out that event. We did it over at the AMC Theaters, Barrywood AMC Theaters. I remember that. And yeah, it was, a Jason, it was incredible. And, and I'll be honest, you know, again, I'm from Crawfordville, Georgia. And so this was my first red carpet, man. And, and so I milked the red carpet for everything I could get out of it. I went up the carpet. I went back down the carpet because I didn't know when I was going to get back on the carpet again. But it was magical. The very next day, Chad Bozeman and Harrison Ford are shooting live satellite TV interviews from the museum because the film was opening that day nationwide. And, And so 13 was magical. Well, 2014, I'm like, well, we don't really have anything national that I can hang my hat on, and and, and so, but we've got some momentum, and then lo and behold, Salvy Perez hits the ball down the third base line that was maybe a foot and a half off the plate where there was no way that ball is supposed to get down the third base line, and we get we win that magical playoff game, and go to the World Series you know, subsequently get to the World Series. And now the baseball world is looking at Kansas City. And they were looking at the Negro Leagues Museum. And even though we ultimately lost that World Series, uh, it kind of set the stage from a visibility standpoint from the museum. And then lo and behold, the very next year, our Royals win the World Series. And there we are right back in front of the baseball world and we've been riding that wave ever since
0: that's awesome bob kendrick president of the negro league's baseball museum is our guest website is nlbm.com uh we're going to come back after the break bob and continue on this story and kind of kind of see where we're at in the future i know it's a, a centennial and there's all kinds of other stuff you're working on i'd like to talk about that as well in our next segment you're listening to the grill nation show i am jason grill great conversation with bob kendrick we'll be right back after the break thanks for listening today on 980 a.m or on itunes via podcast it's been a long time since i came around been a long time but i'm back in town this time i'm not leaving without you Tonight. that's right Welcome back to the Grill Nation show. I am your host, Jason Grill. Thanks for listening again on 980 AM and on iTunes via podcast. Or you can go to our website, grillnationshow.com, where we'll have a link to the show and all of our other podcasts and all of our other great guests. Bob Kendrick is my guest today, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Their website is nlbm.com. He's on Twitter at nlbmprez, P-R-E-Z, um, Bob, we're, we're really kind of talking about all kinds of great things. You're telling some great stories about how the museum kind of uh, gained more prominence under your leadership and all the, the successful things that Buck O'Neill uh, from above uh, granted us here in Kansas City. <laughs> um, this year is actually uh, this was February 13th. You had an amazing press conference. You had uh, you know the ownership of the Royals. You had uh, the mayor. You had county, you know, elected officials. You had the president or the uh, commissioner of major league baseball at the museum to, to promote your centennial celebration. And uh, tell us about that. I know that's obviously with COVID-19 and a lot of that has maybe changed, but what was that like? And, and tell us about kind of what you envisioned with that.
1: Well, it, it was amazing because it was the execution of a plan that had been undertaken quite some time. We had been looking so forward to what we think is one of the most significant occasions, not in just baseball history, Jason, but in American history. And that's the formation of the Negro Leagues 100 years ago, right here in Kansas City at the Paseo YMCA. That is of course where Rube Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into a meeting on February 13th, 1920. They walked out of that meeting having established the Negro National League the first successful organized Black Baseball League. The Negro Leagues then would go on to operate amazingly for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. So you're right. To commemorate the actual 100th anniversary, we go back into the Paseo YMCA, right around the corner from where the museum operates. It has been designated, of course, as the future home of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. So we go right back into the very building where this all started. And you mentioned, some of, you mentioned a little bit of that roster of distinguished guests that we had. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. We had the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred. We had the chief operating officer of Major League Baseball's player association, Xavier James. Uh, legendary Kansas City Royal and current Jackson County executive, Frank White, was on hand. The Honorable Quentin Lucas, mayor of the great city of Kansas City, is with us. The Royals' new owner, John Sherman, is there with us. The lieutenant governor of the state of Missouri, Mike Kehoe, is there, uh, along with 3rd District Council people, Melissa Robinson and Brandon Ellicott. So we've got a all-star lineup of distinguished guests there to help us commemorate this We're off to a flying start. Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced that morning a joint $1 million contribution to the Negro Leagues Museum as part of this 100th anniversary commemoration. We roll out our year-long centennial celebration plan, open a brand new exhibit called Black Baseball in Living Color. We're off to a flying start. And man, less than a month later, (laughs) everything comes to a screeching halt thanks to COVID and a gold international pandemic. And and so our plans have been somewhat derailed. We're already working on plan B, which is to roll this celebration into 2021. It's too important to have it watered down. It really is. The significance of this celebration means too much Uh, on a lot of fronts, but the platform and scope that it was generating for Negro Leagues history and in particularly our museum was really unprecedented. This was going to be the biggest thing to ever happen to this museum, Jason, since the death of Buck O'Neill in 2006. Uh And the magnitude that this represented I think was going to lead the museum into its next 30, 40, 50 years of existence. Because lost lost inside this wonderful centennial celebration, this is the 30th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah, man, born in a little one-room office here in Kansas City where no one gave it any chance of succeeding. And here we are now 30 years later recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Mm -hmm. But this was this celebration was going to be the thing that I believe was going to set the museum up to operate in perpetuity to help create the funding that's necessary for an entity, a cultural institution like this to sustain itself over a long period of time. So, yeah, there was a lot riding on this celebration. And a lot of that has kind of fallen a little bit by the wayside as a result of this public health situation that we're currently in
0: but you uh i'm curious about major league baseball because uh talk to us about how you kind of have grown that relationship i mean i i, yeah, I feel it's like you've grown since i've been paying attention i know you've been traveling a lot i've seen you give speeches to baseball players at spring training yeah. and different teams i mean it, and they're all coming yeah. to Kansas city at some point and you're having them uh at your facility
1: well you know that's that's the other aspect of this that I'm so disappointed about losing this year because we don't know when baseball is actually going to resume. I certainly think that it will. It is likely to happen in front of, in, in, in an empty stadium though. And, and so all the baseball teams that would have been coming to Kansas city, who the opportunity to get those players into the museum and, and we've seen this evolution continue each and every year, the numbers are growing and you're right. Me going out and, doing events for Major League Baseball as part of this relationship as we try to grow the game collectively, particularly from an African-American perspective. The Negro Leagues, I think, is an important part of that story as we try to get more urban kids playing our sport. They have to understand their place in our sport. And we have a proud heritage as it relates to the history of the Negro Leagues and what it meant both on and off the field. So, yeah, there were there's a lot of stuff riding. And it's been a, you know, to see our relationship grow. And, and I've got to tip my cap to Commissioner Rob Manfred and to the head of the Major League Baseball Player Association, Tony Clark, who has been a longtime friend of mine and a friend of the museum for embracing this institution and understanding the value of what this museum represents at a time where I think the museum may be important now, more important now than ever before with some of the things that we're seeing in our society. And and so this history is extremely valuable, but it has always been, been extremely valuable. It took some folks who had the foresight and the wherewithal to take it now and embrace it. And I think that's what you've seen through the commissioner and through Tony Clark over at the Players Association.
0: When somebody walks into the museum that's not been there, tell us about kind of what they should expect um, and what what's the kind of the – when when, it, when you guys reopen and whatnot and it's back to normal, what can they expect and uh, what what's the usual time someone spends at the museum?
1: It, it can vary in terms of length of time because, Jason, we have people – who will come there and read every single word that's on the wall? There's a lot of content inside the museum. It's in a small footprint, but there's a lot of information inside that small footprint. And there are those who will lose themselves in the museum and spend an entire day. On average, you can do that tour at a good pace in about ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And that's taking in the multimedia. Yeah pieces that we have to offer along with going through and following this timeline story as we kind of treat the story of the museums. So you not only witness the rise and subsequent fall of the Negro leagues, but you also witness the social rise of America simultaneously. And this story is told through the eyes of these very courageous African American ball players and Hispanic ball players who, as I like to say, forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in american history so it is emotional it is compelling it is inspirational it is awe-inspiring but it's not sad it is not sad and i think a lot of times people think they're going to come to the negro league's baseball museum and experience a sad samba kind of story uh-uh, you got the wrong place No, this is a celebration you have to understand That despite the social adversity that these athletes were encountering, they never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you. I create a league of my own. Mm -hmm. And now my league becomes just as good. Some will say even better than your league. Uh huh. And so that is the American way. And I think that's why people relate to this story so incredibly endeared. Once they are introduced to the story. And as I tell people all the time, what's not to love about the story of the Negro League? It's everything that America prides itself in. And
0: we got about a minute left in segment, Bob. If you go to the website, nlbm.com, you also have a lot of educational programs for teachers and and whatnot. and Different people in the community use, which I think is great, especially during the kind of the situation we were in and where it continued to be in with distance learning and all of those types of things. Yeah. You have all that online.
1: Yeah, no, it's important. And as I mentioned, we're off, off air, it's going to become a, an extended part of our business model, thanks to what we've had to do as we navigate through this COVID situation. And so that whole virtual realm is going to be very impactful in helping us take this to basically expose the museum to people who may never come to Kansas City to step foot inside this museum.
0: It's awesome. We're going to be right back for our final segment of the show with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. we we'll right back after the break. Thanks for listening today on 980 AM or on iTunes via podcast. We're going at it tonight, tonight, there's a party on the rooftop, top of the world tonight. Tonight, the Hello. And welcome back to the Grill Nation show. I'm Jason Grill. You're listening to 980 AM or joining us via iTunes on podcast. Great show today with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League's baseball museum, NLBM.com and NLBM Prez. That's P-R-E-Z on Twitter. Bob Buck O'Neill was obviously a, a huge figure in our community and throughout the world and obviously a role model and someone that you obviously had known very well. I've seen there's a president medal of freedom that's, that's part of the, Museum. Buck O'Neill has a replica of a statue that's in the the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But Buck O'Neill, actually, is is he still eligible for the Hall of Fame or what's going on with that? In
1: 2006, we thought the door had been closed on Negro Leaguers after they had the induction in 2006 that Buck sadly missed by one vote from gaining induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But through a new process that is called the Golden Era Committee, he has now resurfaced again on that ballot and potentially has an opportunity to be considered for the Hall of Fame in December of this year. So there's a great possibility that we will learn whether or not Buck O'Neill will finally take his rightful place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so it's going to be another difficult time for me. 2006 was so challenging, man, with Buck not getting into the Hall of Fame and then subsequently passing away later that year. And and it took a lot out of me physically, emotionally, emotionally mentally. And, and now I've kind of got to prepare myself for what happens if he doesn't get in this time. And you wonder sometimes about how much emotion you can give to this process. But I have to say this, Buck has been gone now for almost 14 years, and his fans have remained just as vigilant about him belonging to the Hall of Fame today as they were in two thousand six, when I had to break the news to him that he didn't get enough votes to get in, and there is no way that you couldn't be happy for them, because I think in some ways they will feel vindicated. They will feel like their voices have have been heard, and, and so I've got to, you can't help but be happy, you know. And, and again, looking at the current situation, and, and I talk about this all the time. Buck O'Neill seemed to always bring joy out of despair, always. And as we look at what has been one of the most devastating situations in recent museum history with this pandemic, if he gets into the Hall of Fame. And then we're able to roll into 2021 with not only the continuation of our centennial celebration, which we've already called or which we will already call Negro Leagues 101. But then to orchestrate a Bunk O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration on top of it, it takes this thing over the top again. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, as you start to look at that ray of light at the end of the tunnel, and I think that's why you feel like you the optimism abounds. And as I tell people all the time, despite what is happening currently with not only the Negro Leagues Museum, but so many other great not-for-profit organizations in this city and across the nation, but if you're going to be a steward of this story, you can't wallow in self-pity. It goes back to what we talked about. They never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. They found a way when others thought there was no way. And I think that's the spirit that guides us every single day in the work that we do. And that's why you hold on to that hope and to optimism, because that's what this story is all about. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but it would be special if Buck does get in the Hall of Fame, we get to, to plan a Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration on top of the Centennial celebration and, and 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 think about the potential of what that could do for his museum.
0: One of the cool things that you have on your website is uh, you can get some pretty awesome gear from a lot of these teams. I mean, I know you're a great dresser there, Bob, but I mean, some, <laughs> of, the stuff, I mean, it's some of the coolest stuff, especially the Monarch stuff, of course, in Kansas City, you guys have definitely uh, amped up your uh, online shop and your uh, threads, I guess you would say.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's a big Bob. part. <laughs> it, well, you know, it, it, and it's just that. It's a big part of what we do, And it's really interesting, Jason, when we created our licensing program in the early 1990s, there were people who thought we were crazy. You know, they mindset was, well, who's going to buy this? Nobody knows anything about these teams. But you have to understand baseball. Yeah, baseball is the most romantic sport of them all. And the fact that nobody knew anything about these teams was the exact appeal that led them to want to learn about it and want it to wear. Sometimes the more obscure, the better. And, and so that romantic nature of what the Negro Leagues represents really resonated And then the names and the teams were so cool. And so we got out in front, created a licensing program. That licensing program has done gangbuster business for the museum through the years. And of course, our in-museum gift shop does tremendous business. And of course, the online aspect of our business is growing now. And, And we've been able to maintain that to some extent while we've been closed. And we closed March 14th. Hmm. And and we're just now working on our kind of phased-in reopening plan. We look to open back to the public on June 16th in whatever this limited capacity uh, system is going to be for us, along with the American Jazz Museum. And But we've been able to kind of maintain our online business while we've been closed so that we're able to at least keep some source of revenue coming into our operations during this time. And so my staff has been coming in. And fulfilling orders on a weekly basis, but we'll get back to you know full fledged business within the next week or so.
0: That's great to news. Um, again, nlbm.com. dot com. Um while we got a couple of minutes left in the show. What's some of the best advice you have or you've learned from Buck O'Neill over the uh over his life? Uh, you got any uh couple things you can share with us?
1: Well, you know, I go back for me and I look at what transpired February 27, 2006, when he didn't get into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and how his true character was shown to the world in in glowing fashion. And that day probably resonates the most with me. He shared so much wisdom. And I tell people all the time, Jason, the smartest thing I ever did was I kept my mouth closed and listened because there was so much wisdom to be imparted. He didn't force it on you, but it was there. And, and, and he would just share these things from his own life experiences that you kind of now take to heart. So there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about Buck O'Neill. And even those days when I'm faced with difficult decisions, I kind of draw strength from being with Buck. But that day in February 27th, 27, February 27, 2006, I will hold near and dear to my heart for as long as my mother would say I'm in my natural mind because the courage he showed that day and the strength of character he showed that day after getting the disappointing news of not getting in was absolutely amazing when essentially he wrapped his arms around and what that time was a room filled with people who thought it was going to be a Hall of Fame celebration announcement and a nation of baseball fans. He wrapped his arms around all of us and said, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, don't don't be sad. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter. I had an opportunity. And I think I just draw from that spirit. And then, as you may recall, he would go to Cooperstown and give the speech on behalf of the 17 Negro Leaguers who got into the Hall of Fame because all of them were dead. They were all dead. They didn't have a voice. And there was Buck being their voice. One of the most selfless acts in American sports history. So those are the kind of things, even more than just these nuggets that he would share with you. Right. You know, he dropped something, you know, he dropped something, you know, don't expect a thoroughbred to act like a mute. You know, and it, it, just these little nuggets like that. And it, and it just challenges you to think about that, you know, and it helps you understand the mindset of people and yeah. how to work with people and, and hopefully bring them together for a common cause and a common goal.
0: I'm Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Thank you for coming on the Grill Nation show. We'll we have you back at some point when everything gets back to normal, my friend. Thank you so much.
1: Anytime, Jason. Thanks
0: for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. Take care. I throw my hands up in the air sometimes. Say-